0: welcome to the salem alliance church podcast to learn more about salem alliance including house churches gathering times and other resources please visit us online at salemalliance.org today's talk is given by brian Condello. good morning church good morning church so good to see you this morning for those of you watching online or in house churches, so glad you can join us in this way. And would you just pray with me as we begin? Jesus, as we dive into your word this morning, we just pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would speak to our minds, Holy Spirit, that you would move in us, that you would move in this place uniquely as you always do. Continue to conform us to your character, Jesus. Jesus. We pray that you would open up your word to us today in your name, amen, amen. For most of the history of the world, people groups and tribes and nations have waged war. And they have waged war to either retain their thrones or to overtake the thrones of other people. Now, we understand that these wars are not waged for the chair alone. It's not as if some kind of leader is sitting back and going, man, What I wouldn't do to sit in that chair. My back would feel so much better. That would be so much more comfortable. But we use the terminology because the terminology means something. It symbolizes authority and power and prestige. And we know that the one who sits on the throne is the one who rules. We know the one that sits on the throne gets to pass judgment, is worthy to receive praise. And that's why thrones are contested, because they're powerful symbols of all of those things. Let me give you a few examples here. This is King Edward's chair, and every English monarch since the 14th century has had their coronation on that chair. It's a symbol of power. This next one here, this is a Danish throne. It's called the Unicorn Throne because in the 1600s, legend had it that it was actually shaped out of unicorn horns. Now, spoiler alert, it's just narwhal, but they can believe what they want to believe. This next throne here is the Iron Throne and it's hotly contested on HBO, fiercely contested. Uh, This next throne is (laughs) equally important, maybe more important. I don't know. We can pass on that one. This next throne has been fought over in the entire galaxy for millennia. It's been a long time that this thing has been contested. Now, I've actually had the distinct opportunity to sit on two different thrones in my lifetime, two very important thrones. The first one here, this is the throne from the movie Aquaman. (laughs) I'm sure you recognize that there uh, from Universal Studios and the very regal look that's going on right there. And then the next throne I had the opportunity to sit on is the Oregon Duck throne. Also a very important throne that you can sit on. And apparently, I only have one regal pose that I know when I sit on a throne. I'm always looking wistfully to the right in the middle distance. I don't know what that's about. But we're going to talk about thrones today. I showed you those pictures because we're going to talk about the throne in Revelation. You see, a throne is the dominant image in the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, the entire narrative centers around the throne. There's 40 plus references to throne. There's seven great throne room scenes in the book of Revelation. And that's because we need to know, without a shadow of a doubt, who has authority, who is ruling, who has power, who passes judgment, who is worthy to receive our praise. We need to know the one who is on the throne. And Revelation assures us that there is a throne. There's one ultimate seat of power, and it's not vacant, and it's not up for grabs because the Lamb is on the throne, and He reigns in victory, and He restores justice. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The Lamb is on the throne. He reigns in victory. He restores justice. He's the conquering king. He's the just judge. He rules eternity. He makes everything right. And so we're continuing on in our series called Overcomer as we study the book of Revelation. And last week, Steve preached from Revelation 19, and he talked about the four different hallelujahs that we see there and focused in particular on the hallelujah of the wedding feast and the hallelujah that Trina said yes and actually married him. And that was a good story as well. And this week, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to see two distinct scenes. We're going to see scene one as the Lamb is on the throne reigning in victory. And we're going to see in scene two scene two, excuse me, that the Lamb is on the throne restoring justice. And both of these scenes have significant impact on the way that we live now and on the rest of our eternity. So here's scene one, starting in verse one. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with a key to the bottomless pit, And a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Now, a couple quick things about this. I love that it begins with an angel coming and grabbing Satan and binding him in the chains and throwing him in the bottomless pit. Because sometimes I think we have this opinion that Satan and Jesus are opposites. As if it's this somehow 50-50 struggle between good and evil. But we see here right away that an angel comes and binds Satan. And it's a reminder that Satan is just a fallen angel. and, And as evidenced by the text, not even the most powerful of the angels. And then he's thrown into this bottomless pit for a thousand years. Which means that he's in a thousand year free fall. Which has nothing to do with where we're going today. I just thought it was interesting. Now... This thousand years may or may not be literal, but we know, as we've talked about in the book of Revelation, that numbers mean something. And the number 10 is the number of completion, is one of the things that it represents. And so 10 times 10 means something is very complete, and 10 times 10 times 10 means it's very, very complete. It's also a number that signifies sovereignty, sovereignty. It means that God's in control. So 10 times 10 times 10 means God is very, very, very in control. Now let's pick it up in verse 4. It says, Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. We see those who have been faithful reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Now, this is a very specific-sounding group of martyrs, and John isn't usually so specific as he's defining who martyrs are. And so maybe this is symbolic as well. Beheading was for Roman citizens so that they didn't have to suffer the indignities of any other kind of death. Uh, like crucifixion. And so this possibly has a connotation to citizenship. It's this idea of those being faithful will get to reign with the Lamb for a 1,000 years. And this 1,000-year reign is where we get this idea of, maybe you've heard it, it's called the millennium. And there's a whole framework of biblical theology built around this passage with diagrams and with timelines. And sometimes these diagrams and these interpretations have been used to draw lines in the sand, to put people in categories, and oftentimes maybe even to build dividing walls. There's three main viewpoints. There's premillennialism, which believes that Christ returns and sets up a literal thousand years and then eternity comes. There's postmillennialism, which believes that There's a church age of a 1,000 years of success, and then Christ comes and ushers in eternity. There's amillennialism, which believes that Jesus is reigning now. He bound Satan when he first came. And the millennium is kind of symbolic of the church age because it's inward. His kingdom is inward. Now, here's the thing. Whatever view you hold, if you even hold a view, I want to tell you that you will not be disappointed if your view is wrong. You won't. Now, all of these views somehow capture parts of what's going to happen, but I don't believe that any of them completely encapsulate the truth. And we can speculate all we want about the pathway to the end, but the main thing that we need to remember is that the outcome is a sure thing. And what we need to see most in this passage is that the Lamb is on the throne. The lamb reigns victorious. And this victory of the lamb means victory for all those who surrender to him. Kind of think of it the same way as when David went out against Goliath and he had a sling and he hurled the stone and the rest of the nation didn't even lift a stone, but they gained victory through his actions. Because the lamb is victorious, we are victorious, and we will reign with him. You see, John wants us to understand that Jesus is already reigning as king. We're not waiting for Jesus to become king. He is king. He was king yesterday. He's king today. He will be king forever. And nothing can remove him from that throne. You see, he's not at the whim of forces that are somehow beyond his control because no such forces exist. There's nothing that is beyond his control. And I know oftentimes it doesn't seem like that. It's been a difficult year, to say the least. And sometimes we can live under this cloud, and it feels like Jesus isn't reigning at all. It feels like maybe he isn't even present at all in our lives. And we can live under this idea that maybe, just maybe, the kingdom of this world is more powerful than the kingdom of the Lamb. I read a story a couple of weeks ago in the Washington Post. It was written by a man named Jeff Hennigson who when he was 15 years old he was diagnosed with brain cancer, a very aggressive form of brain cancer and he was given 2 to 3 years to live, which means that every birthday that he had was equal parts celebration and dread. As he lived under the cloud of this diagnosis as he wondered when the end was going to come, as he wondered when cancer was going to win, as he went through several difficult treatments to cure this. Now he's writing this article 35 years later, when he finds out that his initial diagnosis was false, that the tumor in his brain was benign. And so he was writing about what it meant to live under this cloud, what it meant to live under this false diagnosis, and how the fear and the financial struggle and the family pain was finally giving way to hope as he kind of came out from under this. And I often wonder, how often do we live under a false diagnosis? How often do we live under a cloud of uncertainty and fear and despair, wondering who's on the throne? Who's reigning? Who's ruling? Who's in charge here? But Revelation 20 assures us that we can live with hope because even though the battle rages around us, the war is over. And the outcome was never in question. You see, because the lamb is victorious and on the throne, we have hope. We can know that we have a future. We can know that it belongs to him. It's not up for grabs and it's not in our hands. And we can know that our best days are before us. Our eternity is established because the lamb reigns victorious on the throne. Now, Satan then is released for like a minute and he picks up right where he left off and he gathers nations to battle against the Lamb, but the battle never happens because fire falls from heaven and he's defeated. And it's kind of as if Satan has one last opportunity to flail around with lies and deceit and accusations so that in his defeat, we can have comfort knowing that those things are gone forever. There will be no more lies deceit or accusations against us. Satan is once and for all banished forever. And that's scene one, Jesus on the throne victorious. The lamb wins. Scene two, let's pick up in verse 11. It says, And I saw a great white throne, and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life, And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Scene two is the lamb who restores justice, and he restores justice by vanquishing evil. This is the final throne room scene that we see in the book of Revelation and it seems as if all other things fade away and the only thing in the spotlight in this scene is the throne and the only thing important in this scene is the one who is enthroned and it says even the earth and the sky flee from his presence but there's nowhere to hide it's the ultimate example of creation trying to hide from the creator and there will be nowhere for us to go either because with the earth and sky gone, that pretty much takes care of all of our usual hiding spots. Nowhere for us to go. And it says the great and small stand before the throne. There's nobody so great that they just get an automatic pass. There's nobody too insignificant that they get overlooked. Everyone will be there. The ground is level before the throne. You see, Scripture is clear. All of us will stand before this throne. All of us will stand before the throne of the Lamb. It says it in 2 Corinthians 5. It says it in Luke chapter 12. Romans 14 says it this way. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God and each one will give a personal account. It's intimidating. How can we do this? What will we say who among us will be able to stand in that moment? Verse 12 gives us a key. Verse 12 tells us how it's going to happen. It says, the books were opened. Now, this is one of those best day, worst day kind of things in all of our eternity. Could be the best day, could be the worst day for us. The books are a hyperlink to Daniel chapter 7. John's referencing this long-held belief that all of our actions are recorded in the ledgers of heaven. Everything that we do in public is recorded. Everything that we do in private is recorded. It's all there. We have biographies being written about us every day. You have a biography of your life being written. I have a biography of my life being written. And I don't know how you feel about that. Maybe your first thought is, I don't really have much going on in my life. I'd have more like a pamphlet. Just a little something going on. Sometimes I look at my life and I think it's more like a comic book than real life. But we have biographies being written about our lives. Now, I want you to imagine for just a minute that I was holding your biography in my hands right now. I don't know how that would make you feel. I think probably the thought of that would be quite embarrassing. Now, I'm sure that there would be good things in here. I'd be like, oh, man, that time that that you served so well in that instance, that was great. That time that you gave up and sacrificed so much. That time that you listened to that guy preach on Revelation 20 so attentively. Way to go. But that's not where our minds go, is it? Our minds immediately go to all of the places we've messed up. My guess is you'd be sitting there thinking, oh, man, I hope he doesn't read that. I hope he doesn't read about that one time that I... Or I hope he doesn't read page after page of all those addictions that I just can't seem to get over. And when we think about it this way, you know, it's not so much that God judges us, it's that we write our own judgment. You see, because of our biographies, the court has all of the evidence it needs. And then it says, and then the book of life was opened the Lamb's Book of Life. The idea behind this is that every ruler had a roll book of people who were alive in their kingdom. And when they were dead, their names were removed from the roll. And so those in the Book of Life are living, active members of the kingdom. And so in the Lamb's Book of Life, it lists all of those who are living, active members in his kingdom. You see, the Lamb's Book of Life is Christ's Biography. It lists his deeds, his deeds done on our behalf because God loved us so much, because Jesus sacrificed himself for us. We can have our names added to his biography. You see, our books, our books of lists are lists, a full accounting of our lives, everything that we've done. But for those who trust in the Lamb, for those who have surrendered to him, line by line, Failure by failure, embarrassment by embarrassment, sin by sin, they're all crossed out, covered over, washed away, forgiven because of the sacrifice of the land. Because Jesus shed his blood for us, our biographies are clear. Isaiah 53 says that he was pierced for us that he was broken so that we could be whole. You see, the Lamb's biography rescues us from our own biographies. The Lamb's biography rescues us from our own biographies. If you want to think of it this way, if you think of our biographies here, the Lamb's biography was placed over ours. And I am so glad that that was second and not first. Ours are first, his is second. And so if you've surrendered your life to him, maybe you look at this in a new way. May you receive freedom and healing today knowing that his biography covers yours. And that's how we can stand before the throne. Because our names are in his book. But here's the thing. Some will not receive this gift of eternal life. And I realize that that's a very difficult proposition to swallow. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. You see, there'll be those that surrender and say, God, I want to do your will, and there will be those who never surrender, and God just says, okay, keep doing your thing. Lewis goes on to write that some will tell God, leave me alone. And that's, quite honestly, the very definition of what hell is. Paul writes about it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, For those who have rejected God, they will be forever separated from the Lord and from His glorious power. They'll be forever separated from that which gives true life. And when we're separated from that which gives true life, we end up deteriorating and disintegrating, and we end in ruin. There are some who will wish to build their lives and their identities apart from the Lamb. And how, quite honestly, is God honoring that decision? Which can leave us unsettled and can leave us with a lot of questions. And I want to remind us that I think our first responsibility is to surrender our hearts and our lives to the lamb, to repent, to cling to him for life, to cling to him for our identity, to have our names written in his biography. And then we can go and share grace and truth with our lives and with our words. And lastly, I would say this, we leave judgment then in the hands of Jesus we trust him the lamb will do what is right the lamb that loved us so much that he gave his life for us he will do what is right now i want to come back to that idea in in just a minute this idea of leave me alone but for those who have surrendered to the lamb i want to remind us of two different things two things that we can take away from this and the first is this i want to remind us that we have access We have access to the throne. We have access to the throne room. For those who have said, leave me alone to God, the throne room can be a scary place. But for those who have surrendered, the throne room is a welcoming place. The throne room is where we meet with coach to go over the playbook. The throne room is where we engage in throne room prayer. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. You see, We don't have to stand in the shadows. We're not disqualified. We don't just stand at the door, kind of hoping, waiting to get in so that we can see through a crack in the door. We can boldly come in because our names are in the book of life. And so don't let the throne room be like that gym membership that you never use. We have access. And secondly, as followers of the Lamb, we have authority. We've been given authority. We get to be a part of what the Lamb is doing. We get to reign victorious with Him. We get to help make everything right. Each of us has a role to play. You have been given kingdom authority. You have been given keys. In Matthew 16, Peter's given keys to lock and unlock things of the kingdom. Two chapters later, those keys are given to the believers. We are given keys to lock powers up that are not a part of the Lamb's kingdom, but to also unlock the door to the kingdom so that others can respond to the gospel. This authority, this power is not us. It's the gospel. It's Holy Spirit in us as we unlock things so others can respond to the grace and the truth of the Lamb so that others can receive healing. We do not use our authority and power to fight for thrones, That's not the way of the lamb, as we've studied in the book of of Revelation. The way of the lamb is humility. It's surrender. What John has made very clear is that Jesus reigns as the lamb. And what that means is he reigns by giving himself away. He reigns by suffering for and with others. And so we reign with him by giving ourselves away. We reign with him by suffering for and with others. Others, every act of servanthood, every choice to suffer with and for others is an act of reigning with the Lamb. We have access. We have authority. And we need to walk in that. One final thing. Let's come back to a response to this idea of saying, leave me alone. Now, a lot of you in this room have said, leave me alone to Satan and surrender to the Lamb. And your names are written in the book of life, but some continue to say, leave me alone to Jesus, believing that that's where true freedom is found. If I say, leave me alone to Jesus, then I get to do my own thing and I don't have to live by his rules. But true freedom only comes in surrender to him. And you may have found that as your experience. You may have found that this freedom you think you have isn't truly free. True freedom comes from having his biography Cover our biography. Too often we want our biography to speak for itself. We want to do enough good things and think it will shout loud enough to vindicate us, but it can't do that. It will never do that. And so to you, I would say today's the day. Today's the day to move from leave me alone to I don't want to be alone. Today's the day to surrender to the Lamb. And maybe this is something that you've been thinking about or wrestling with, or maybe you feel a stirring even now. If you're in a house church, I would encourage you to talk to your house church leader. Have that conversation today. At the end of every service in this place, we have people who wait by the cross to have those conversations so that you can begin to discuss what it means to surrender your life, to have your name in his book so that his biography covers yours. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for these two scenes that we see here today. Thank you that you reign on the throne victorious and we do not have to live under any kind of false diagnosis that tells us otherwise. You are on the throne. And Jesus, again, I thank you that your biography covers ours that you loved us so much that you would rather die than live without us. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We hope you've been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit SalemAlliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.